The loss of local indigenous American fruit is a growing concern of those who treasure local food as well as biodiversity. David Hubble has been protecting a local squash in Louisiana known locally as Melaton. He's talking about it with us. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with David Hubble. He is really a professional person, but he has hobbies and passions, one of which is to preserve Louisiana food history and culture and is particularly interested in the Meloton. So he's gonna talk to us today about his work with the Meloton and other Louisiana vegetables. Welcome, David. Thank you, Liz, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Tell us a little bit about Meloton.org and what the whole purpose of it is and why it's needed. Okay, I'm assuming your listeners have some background with the Meloton, but if they're not from the Louisiana area, they may be familiar with it under other names as Chayote squash or Christophine or Shoot Shoot, but it grows throughout the world. But the New Orleans area in particular has a, a nostalgic love for this pear-shaped vegetable pear, is what it's also called vegetable. And so- and it's, um, it's native to the Americas, right? Right. It's uh, believed to come through the Mesoamerica, Latin American route through work that Meliton.org, which I'll touch on their background a little bit in a minute. But what we found is that, you know, they came through several couriers into Louisiana being a port city back in the early 1800s. And, you know, the French have given, been given credit, the Spanish and the English. But with work done with Meliton.org, it appears that the big influx really came with the Haitian Revolution and slave revolt between 1789 and 1802. I think those were the right dates. But we had a big influx in New Orleans about, I think it was 15 to 20,000 refugees came to the city. And what ended up happening is that one of the staples for them was the Meliton. And the reason we believe it was primarily with the Haitians is because there's only two places in the world that use the term Meliton for this fruit, and that's Haiti and New Orleans. So Dr. Lance Hill, who runs Meliton.org and founded it, uh, he's done a lot of extensive research on history through the years, and that was one of the things that he was able to kind of th- tie those threads together. So fast forward throughout the 1800s and 1900s, some melitons were all grown throughout the region. And for those who don't know, it's a vining fruit. It's about, it can grow 50 to 100 foot long. It's got kind of heart-shaped leaves that are about the size of an d- adult hand. And it can produce anywhere from 30 to 100 of these vegetable pears that'll hang down and they will produce primarily in the fall. So from late September through almost the first freeze or frost, they'll produce melaton. So as you can imagine that for the early New Orleanians and Southern Louisianians, especially, you know, this was probably one of the more 
popular amongst the, the poorer class of people. Kind of like crawfish really wasn't all that popular to like the 60s and 70s, but those who didn't have as many means were always going out and catching them and eating them throughout the history. Right. So, yeah, I think that was the same thing with Melitol, but, you know, fast forward, you look through the papers, they're mentioned in the uh, 1840s. There was actually somebody who won, they had like a vegetable, I think a state fair in 1866 in Louisiana. And there was a, someone who actually grew a vegetable pear. And so it's mentioned there. And then throughout like the Times-Picayune and other, the older New Orleans newspapers, you'll see advertisements for them selling them. And then, you know, especially in the 1920s, when I'm sure you're familiar with like the old menus that would be produced by the Picayune for the sure. housewives, you'd always see those listed in, as part of the meal. So it was always kind of a staple in the background. And I think nostalgically for my generation and, and generation before us, uh, you know, it was always on like your Thanksgiving table and your Christmas table because that's when it was always popular. So and available and available. Right. And so I think the other thing too, is that, you know, with South Louisiana being, you know, predominantly Catholic with big families, you probably had to feed a lot of mouths and uh, especially a Melitol vine in a modest sized backyard, you could produce enough for a couple of months to, to keep everybody full. Yeah. So I think my, that's why it's popular. In my backyard, we have a lot of trouble because I just go out and in the morning, the squirrels are all over the vines, just yep. eating them up, you know, oh, yeah. it's like if I get three from a vine, I feel lucky because oh, I, yeah. can't beat, I can't beat the squirrels. Oh, yeah. And, and that was that. So I guess the other thing, uh, I don't know if you want to share with everybody, but I'm actually in Mobile, Alabama. I've been growing the Louisiana heirlooms here for 11 years. And part of the journey was discovering that and this leads to Melanton.org. Um, what happened is that when I got interested in starting a garden and having my own yard, the first few years, I would just plant whatever I could get at the big, big box stores. Then I ended up kind of wanting to, I'd find all these cookbooks with these traditional New Orleans recipes. <clears throat> and I'd see recipes and ingredients for things like Creole tomatoes and uh, Meliton. And if you go to the grocery stores in the Mobile area, I could find store-bought tomatoes and chayote squash. And, you know, there's a little difference there. So I started getting intrigued as to what I could plant um, the varieties from Louisiana. The, the climate here is very similar. And, the, and I happen to be in an area that doesn't have a lot of red clay, thank goodness. So I can plant fairly well, a lot of the same seeds. So I started with uh, planting a store-bought chayote, which made a beautiful vine, but it didn't flower till like November of that year and I got one walnut size Melanton and woke up one morning and a squirrel had mauled it and it was up to the the point where it was about to freeze and so I lost that vine but only through that uh, failure of that growth I learned that I didn't have the right variety and that's when I found that Melanton.org had been doing some work and they had come to the same conclusions after Katrina, Dr. Lance Hill, who was a professor at Tulane University, I think a social justice professor, he was originally from Kansas, and he settled in the area, I think, since 1979. And one of the things he really experienced early, I think, was the neighbor, how did he describe it, the neighborliness of people who have Melitol vines <laughs> coming over and sharing. And I, I think he was hooked 
And so for many years, he enjoyed either growing them and eating them. And after Katrina, if I understand correctly, you know, he was trying to locate a lot of these vines that people had. And because of all the flooding, I believe a lot of the, the root system obviously doesn't do well with that much water. Mm-hmm. So he could not find any. And I believe him, others in New Orleans and in Plaquemine Parish, what they ended up doing was they started just planting the store-bought seeds or the fruit as well. And you know, to, to get a meliton to grow, you have to get the fruit itself to get a sprout because it's got a single seed. And so you can't extract that seed. It's got to feed off of the, the body or the fruit. So they would plant those and they ended up with the same issues that I had is that they'd get nice vines, but they would never get any fruit. Or when they did, the freeze would come. And um, what it turned out is that those, those varieties are actually grown up like 4,000 feet on the side of a mountain. Um, most, if you look, when you go to the different grocery stores, even the local regional stores in Louisiana and you see Melitant, if you look on the stickers, you'll see that they're either from Costa Rica or Mexico. And so they're growing up on the mountainside. They're, you know, they're cousins to our Louisiana Melitant. They taste very similar, of course, but they just have a little different growing period and they don't really flower till November. So when Dr. Hill discovered this, he, he kind of in, uh, impassioned him to really kind of find the heirloom varieties that were so popular around South Louisiana and New Orleans. So he ended up looking around and I think he found a lot of folks in the outlying communities that didn't have as much damage from Katrina, you know, out and toward the Lafayette, Opelousas areas through, um, you know, up the river and river parishes. He was able to collect people donated them so that he was able to start a, a program called Adopt a Meliton. And he was doing that with the Crescent City Farmers Market, I think around 2009. And I believe the plan with that was, is that he would start a plant. They would give a plant to somebody. And the promise was that whatever you produced, you got to give half of it back to start and so that they could get more growers. And I think in a few years, they managed to end up uh, shut the program down because they were fairly successful. And I think he's identified like nine different varieties. But out of that, uh, he put together a wonderful website. It's a nonprofit organization now, Meliton.org, M-I-R-L-I-T-O-N.org. And he's got all kinds of research he's done on growing them, the history of them, um, pest control. And uh, he started that, like I said, about 2010. And uh, pretty much he would also try to help place uh, Melitons for uh, adoption or for people who were trying to sell them because a lot of people when they try they come with the same problems that he and I had getting the store-bought ones. Right yeah my favorite way to eat them is to um, use a mandolin and make very thin thin slices and uh, just put oil and vinegar and eat them raw. That's my very favorite way. I haven't tried that yet because I've been collecting a bunch of recipes and that's a good point there too, is that Dr. Hill's also collected a lot of international recipes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we think of Melitton in New Orleans area, we probably think of stuffed Melitton or Melitton casserole, which is going to be probably with shrimp or crab meat or both. But then also uh, a lot of people put ground pork or ground beef or ham. And so those are some of the more popular ways. 
But what we found is that because they grow all over, I've had a man from Germany contact me. He was a former chef in New Orleans. He grows them in Germany. So they grow in Asia and, and Latin American countries. So there's all kinds of recipes out there. You just have to look at the right names and be able to translate them. And uh, you can really uh, expand the Melanchthon repertoire of recipes to, to cook with. So I want to talk about how to pronounce it. Okay. And, uh, so uh, tell us about that project. I know that's part of Melaton.org. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Dr. Hill has, uh, he and I kind of brainstorm on a lot of different things. I got involved with the group a little bit more about two or three years ago, because I'm probably almost the only one, not the only one, but I'm one of the many as passionate as he is about them. And so I've gotten to where I've been like volunteering and helping. So one of the ideas he had was, you know, trying to get an idea of the different pronunciations, because when you start talking to people, some say Merliton, some say Meliton. And so we think there's maybe one or two or three ways. And so he suggested, let's try to see if we could capture some voices recording how people pronounce Meliton. So I thought about it and I came up with an idea just to reach out to people such as yourself and ask, you know, if you'd be willing to participate in a short project where we get 30 to 60 seconds of where you tell us where you grew up and where you live and how you say Meliton and a favorite way to eat it. And so we're putting those together into little one minute videos that are going to be available through the website. We'll have a button that you can press, but then we'll also probably have some on YouTube that we'll be able to share. And uh, right now I've got 18 that I've put together and it's amazing throughout South. I want to try to get South Louisiana, South Louisianians, native Louisianians to pronounce it. And it's interesting. You go between not just Lafayette and the river parishes in New Orleans and the North shore, there's all kinds of different pronunciations, but even from the seventh or eighth ward, you hear, you hear it differently. And so I think that was something that he's been really surprised at is just the diversity in how folks say it. Yes. I think it's really interesting and you can kind of place people by the way they say it. No question about that. Right. I mean, my, my grandparents, both sets lived in Metairie. They had moved from the river parishes. So my parents grew up in Metairie and I can usually place either a Metairie accent or a river parish accent. <laughs> and even in Alabama, if I hear somebody pronounce certain words, I'll listen to them and it kind of annoys my kids and wife some, but I'll say, Hey, are you from, uh, are you from Metairie? Are you from, uh, you, know, you sound like you might be from Vashery or someplace like that. And so <laughs> I've been pretty close a lot of times just because you, uh, you can hear that. So just like that, yeah, you can hear it with Melanchthon too. Yes, definitely. So what is your absolute favorite way to, to do, to cook it? Um, probably the casserole right now. Uh, what I did, there's probably th three favorite ways. When I started, uh, part of what I wanted to do is bring it back to my family table at Christmas. My mom and dad hadn't really been cooking it much. So I reached out to some of our River Parish cousins and got the way they made it, which was basically a casserole with shrimp. And so I've been doing that for a number of years. And then with the work that we were doing, I've been doing also one of our big uh, supporters is Chef John Fols. He and I got a chance to cook some last summer or last uh, fall, I should say. And he did it with shrimp and crab meat. Mm -hmm. and that really was, um, that took the recipe that I had. It really bumped it up a lot. So that's probably my top favorite way to really eat it. And then I'll make a uh, cream and melaton soup 
which is really good. Uh-huh. And then I'll pickle them too. And I've seen you had a video where you pickled some as well. Yes. Uh-huh. So, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think they make, and they they pickle fast. So you can do a quick pickle. Yeah. I, I, mine probably are a little more like a, I guess like what you'd find in relish kind of thing. They make, they're very good in Bloody Marys, Ooh. the ones I do. So they're kind of spicy. Uh-huh. That sounds but, great. Yeah. But one of the things, uh, it's now, I guess, a defunct festival. But for many years, the Bywater had a Melaton festival. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I went to at one time, and my main intent was to get their cookbook. They have a wonderful cookbook <laughs> that they put together. And so there's a lot of recipes, you know, New Orleans based primarily. And so there's like Melaton gratin, Melaton bread. Uh, I was trying to think of some of the other ones when I gave this talk the other day to Pensacola, I was just sharing all the different ways that you could, you could make them and cook them. I think you could, if you, if you really wanted to do go crazy, you could grate them and use it, the, use it one for one as a, a melaton cake, as you would grated apple in an right. apple cake. I think mm-hmm. that would be really good. Well, one of the recipes that Dr. Hill shared with me that I made was a Jamaican melaton tart, and it had some lime juice. I used a dry ingredient. He was hoping I would use a a, uh, fresher ingredient, but even with the lime juice and putting it together, it tasted a lot like an apple pie when Mm -hmm. it was done. When you were talking about grating it and maybe even using a mandolin, I know I've seen like melaton used for like a coleslaw type of thing. Yeah. But, you know, with you talking about it raw, the other, the other comment that people, when, when people, uh, when you typically cook it, they're usually par, I'd say parboiled, you, you cut them in half and you boil them or you boil them whole so that you can scoop out the pulp because the skin's very tough on a lot of them. And, um, but if you eat them raw, what you'll find is when you peel them, they have that very sticky substance. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing that I, I've tried one or two pieces raw, but I haven't really eaten them a lot. Does the, the vinegar type of help cut it? The oil and vinegar cuts that so that you aren't even aware of it at all. Now, if you had it in a big chunk, like if you had a French fry size instead of a really thin piece, it right. might it might not. But if you make sure that you make it very thin, it's mm-hmm. just crispy. That's okay. all. Yeah. I'll have to try that. I, last year, I ended up with about 100 Melaton. And uh, so far, I've got two that are on the vine right now that'll be I'll be picking in a week or so but I'm hoping that I'll I'll have maybe at least half that amount this year my vine got had some as you were talking about squirrels one good thing for squirrels is a motion activated sprinkler Dr. Hill suggested that to me and I got one through Amazon that it's a tripod and so it'll it'll extend up to about six foot and I put some PVC pipe underneath it to extend it further but that's helped a lot with the, the squirrels, squirrels chewing up my, my vine. Uh-huh. But the other thing is that I've had for the first time were some uh, cabbage loopers, the same things that you'll see that'll eat the holes in your cabbage and broccoli. Yes. Uh, about a month ago, I started seeing my leaves were just really defoliated bad. So I talked to our local gardening guru, guru here in Mobile, who's also a big Melita fan. He prescribe some different ways to take care of it with some BT spray. And I did that and I was able to, I I hadn't completely probably got rid of them, but I was able to get enough new growth to come back that 
I got flowering about a month ago and uh, things are on track to, to get a crop this fall. That's, that's really good. Well, so tell us a little bit about the Israeli white. Uh, uh, the well, Israel Thibodeau. Yeah. Um, so one thing is that, you know, people who grew up uh, around Meliton more than likely either had the ones that their family members grew or the ones that you see in the store, which the chayotes, and they're usually a light green color and smooth. And um, in reality, when you start digging into melitons and you'll look at some of the pictures, if you go to meliton.org, you'll see they come in light green, dark green, spikes, deep furrows, and even a couple that are ivory white. And what Dr. Hill discovered early on was there's a gentleman named Mr. Uh, Israel Thibodeau who lived in Opelousas. And from 1970 until his death in 2013, he grew this white Meliton. And uh, these are a little bit bigger than most of the ones that you'll get in the store or you grow yourself are probably three quarters of a pound, half to three quarters of a pound. And these are a little over a pound. So they're good size. Right before Mr. Thibodeau passed away, he, he gifted some to Dr. Hill. So I picked up a few and uh, brought them to Alabama. And then Chef John Foles picked up a few, as well as many others. I did not have any success. We tried planting them at my father's house in Fairhope. And that summer, I think we had a pretty bad drought. Mm. But Chef John ended up being pretty successful with his in Baton Rouge. And so he grew his off and on or yearly with pretty much success until about 2016. And I think we had, they had the big flood that came through in August of that year. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, if you look throughout the internet, you'd see a lot of, especially Facebook people asking, you know, where can you get the white Israel Thibodeaux? It was kind of this rare, you know, hard to find, not really the Holy Grail of, of Melitone, but it was just a rare, rare thing to people want to try to grow. I don't know that there's necessarily a whole lot of difference in taste, but it's just kind of the uniqueness. And um, I found a gentleman who was growing them in Lafayette after much looking. And so uh, I actually got a, a text message one day from somebody after church asking where they could get some white Israel Thibodeaux. And I couldn't figure out who it was. And it turned out it was John Fols. And, and so I had worked with him on some of his boucheries. And so I started, I gave him the name of this one guy and, and kind of made the connection. He sent his gardener over there and he got six. And so the six of them, uh, they planted uh, at his White Oak Estates in Baton Rouge, and they were doing pretty well. And I, we ended up with in 20, beginning of 2020, so this would have been 2019. In 2020, he reached out to me again saying, hey, I got one vine left. Can you find out if I can get some more? So I reached out to the guy in Lafayette, well, all his plants had died. Oh, and geez. everywhere we looked, it looked like they were all gone. And so I responded to uh, John. I said, you know, I think you might have the last one. And so all of a sudden we became, he, Dr. Hill and myself got real concerned that, you know, we might be losing the Israel Thibodeau uh, white Meliton. Mm -hmm. So we formed a Israel Thibodeau white Meliton preservation project to try to get the ones that, uh, from the ones that uh, Chef John was growing and kind of do like the adopt a Melitone program that uh, Dr. Hill had done years before, get them to experienced growers who had the room. And so we could get those out to see if we could start repopulating and, and bringing back the, uh, the white Melitone. 
So turned out actually one of the growers in our group actually had one grown in Metairie and also knew of somebody in the North Shore that had one. So we did have three vines. And the first year we got them out to, I think, eight or 10 folks that were growing them. And uh, we tried to put them South Louisiana, one in Mobile, and a couple in the Carolinas just to see if they would grow. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had fairly mixed results. And of course, Chef John ended up planting probably another six at his place. And uh, we did fairly well. I think we said we went from three to maybe 15 vines by the end of the year last year. But then, uh, you know, this year, a lot of people were on track to do well and we got some more out. But Ida came and has kind of devastated a lot of the ones that uh, we had gotten out in Louisiana. The one I had in Mobile didn't make it. And the one that we had in Pensacola, Florida didn't make it. But the ones in the Carolinas also did not do as well, but we got two or three in Texas that are doing okay right now. So the plan will be is that whatever we get, and, and Chef John's are doing well too, is to come up with those names who've already been participating and uh, we'll start those and we'll get them to them where there's a fee involved because of just the, the, the starting the vines and potting them. And then once we get them to the growers, you know, the, the thing is, is they got to communicate back, give me some updates and I'll try to put out a quarterly report just to kind of keep everybody in the know and to share information between everybody on how to, you know, if they're seeing certain problems in Texas versus what they're seeing in Louisiana. And so I have to do a count. I don't think we're back at 15. We may still be a little bit below that, but I've got to get a new report out soon. But hopefully, and you know, if Mother Nature will cooperate, maybe we can really get back to where we're getting 30, 40 or more of those vines and then they won't be quote unquote extinct or, or close to being extinct. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a scary thing. And to feel like you're, you're between extinction and life for this plant is really kind of uh, scary. Right, and that's one of the things about growing these and any of these heirloom vegetables is that, um, I mean, it probably sounds nerdy unless you, you're into doing that, but when you, you know, hold one of these melitons or one of these fruits, <coughs> excuse me, it's kind of like you think about the people who grew them before you and how many generations. The one I've got, uh, the green one I grow here in Mobile, I got from a family friend of my grandfather's, Dan Boudreaux, who lived in Metairie. And he, he lived to be in his 90s. And I talked to him a couple of times and he told me he got them from somewhere where he grew up around Burnside. So and, and he also had shared them with one of my great uncles. So just to think about the, the chain or the passing the baton, so to speak, of who grew them before, who were the care, caretakers of them before. And oftentimes, you know, people took care of them, not really thinking about it, that they were really part of that link in the chain, but they were just growing them. And I think, you know, a lot of people tended to just, it's, it's, they were ubiquitous and, you know. So nobody thought they were special because everybody had some. Yeah. Right. And then I think that goes back to like a lot of what Dr. Hill and Melaton.org is trying to raise that awareness, trying to preserve the heirlooms, and not just the Israel Thibodeaux, but, you know, the things we're going to learn from this project going forward. I mean, there, there's a, like I said, there's nine that he's identified or 10 or so that what he'll do is he'll give them the name of the grower. And oftentimes the grower will say, well, my grandmother grew these or, you know, so he'll name them like there's one named Papa Sylvest. And um, I think I can't remember some of the other ones. Mine, I called it Boudreaux Thibodeau from Mr. Dan Boudreaux, not Thibodeau, Boudreaux Robert. 
and Robert from my, uh, my grandfather was a Robert. So his brother was a Robert. So just trying to distinguish and maybe one day we can kind of figure out where some of them came from originally. Right. Um, Israel Thibodeau is his, his uh, daughter says that one of her uncles gave him the white ones originally. And if you go back in the newspapers, I could find reports from near Opelousas of somebody growing some white ones in the late sixties, early seventies. So it, it's really kind of interesting that when you, when you do these little reports or studies where you can kind of trace back and maybe try to get an idea where they came from. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really, it's really interesting. And so has there been any kind of group meeting about people interested in Melaton since the last Melaton festival that we used to be in Bywater? No, not that I'm aware of. Dr. Hill kind of, he, he was working this for a while. I know he participated in a lot of the festivals and even, I think he even uh, did a couple of talks with maybe Poppy Tooker at some of her demonstrations at the uh, Jazz Fest. Mm -hmm. He was ill for a little while, so it kind of slowed him down. But as far as a group get together, really haven't had anything that I'm aware of. We haven't really planned anything either. Uh, it kind of seems like the, the the group interest is kind of spread out through the Gulf Coast. Right, right. We do have some people, you know, around Birmingham or Georgia who will write to me occasionally and say, hey, can I get one of them to grow in zone six or something? And I'll look at them and, and say, well, you know, quite honestly, you could try, but, uh, you know, your first frost dates may preclude you from, you know, picking any or even getting any flowering. But that kind of goes back to the key that we've been kind of talking about to successfully grow Melaton on the Gulf Coast. you got to have what we're calling Louisiana heirlooms. You know, they weren't found or they weren't uh, native to Louisiana, but they've adapted or they were closer to our climate that they are successful between the Gulf Coast of Texas to uh, Pensacola or to uh, the Florida Panhandle and down. Mm -hmm. So I think what we've identified is that they these grow well between zone 8B, which I'm in, and uh, all the way to 11, which I think encapsulates uh, you know quite a bit of the South Louisiana, south of I-10. So do you have yours growing against a chain link fence? No, mine is, I grew, I built a, a trellis out of four by fours. It's about uh, 12 foot long, no, sorry, 24 foot long, two 12 foot sections, seven foot wide and eight foot tall. And the intention wow. was that it was going to grow and I just walk underneath it and pick them. Uh -huh. And um, what ended up happening is that uh, instead the decided it wanted to jump on the citrus trees I had growing right next to them, <laughs> and, uh, which is fine because the squirrels will jump from a, a big uh, oak tree onto that trellis and will chew on them. But last year I was able to be a little more successful and in, in, in guide the vines up onto the trellis to where I was able to get it to grow. Um, the best I've ever done with that uh, vine, my, my original vine is 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And so it'll grow, it grew 24 foot, it jumped to a big oak tree, and it grew up probably another 40, 50 feet into the tree. And I was thinking, man, I don't know what I'm going to do if I get Melita up there. But luckily, the, the winds uh, came in, I guess, is like we had this past uh, week, and uh, kind of knocked the high vines down. So I was able to just throw it back over the trellis. And that helped in a sense. But um, what we found is that being near the other key is so you want to you want to have the good heirlooms, but you want to have well-drained soil too. 
And so oftentimes what's happened is a lot of people either try to do them in a raised bed or in a, in a kind of a low area and they, the, it just ends up uh, waterlogging or rotting the roots. Yeah. And so that's, that's been a problem where people who get them, when I've uh, sold the plants to people, I'll get some mixed reports back uh, where people will say that, you know, the plant died because you'll start seeing pictures and if it looks kind of yellowish and it's yeah. been a big rain, you can tell that they've had too much water. Yeah, um, yeah. The other, the other thing, which we found, I found this out from Chef John's gardeners and uh, Israel Thibodeau's family is that uh, one of the best fertilizers for Melanchthon are rabbit droppings. Mm. That's um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so Mr. Thibodeau raised rabbits and where uh, John Fols has his growing, he's got his rabbit pens right there. And so uh, luck would have it that I, I'm, not a, I'm not a real animal person as far as having pets. My kids were very interested in having pets. And so they convinced me that they wanted to have rabbits. And so we have two indoor rabbits. And so when I found out that their uh, contributions could be helpful to my melaton, I was a little bit more on board with having them. <laughs> um, although they chew things up like uh, small puppies. and do, uh, <laughs> But other than that, um, that, that's been, like I said, the, the, the rabbit droppings, the, the good drainage, squirrel deterrence and getting them off the ground and having the like i said the heirloom varieties wow. are some of the best keys to success um well i want to thank you so much for being with us today and uh, i hope everybody can go out there and start thinking about melaton even if they're living someplace where they can't grow them still we all want to eat them that's right i appreciate it and I enjoyed it thanks thank you Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.